Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, we define bullshit as, uh, uh, as language, um, statistical figures, data graphics, other forms of presentation that are intended to persuade someone by overwhelming them or impressing them with a blatant disregard for truth or logical coherence. So the key is I'm trying to, rather than inform you about something, I'm just trying to make you think, wow, that guy's so smart, or wow, I can't possibly question him, or whatever, you know, it, um, instead of actually trying to help you understand the world better. That's bullshit. That's Carl Bergstrom. He's a biologist who's fascinated with how birds tell the difference between lies and truth on subjects like sex and food. Interestingly, that led him to wonder how we humans struggle through the avalanche of misinformation available online. He's now a leading figure in a growing army of researchers who are studying misinformation and trying to figure out how to stop it. These researchers come from disciplines as disparate as biology, physics, sociology, and psychology. A few years ago, he co-authored a sort of how-to guide on the subject called Calling Bullshit, and the book itself is a great example of the value of collaboration across disciplines. The example of that that sticks in my mind is the story of you and your co-author, Jevin West, when he told you on the phone that he was thinking of preparing a new course. How did that go? Well, so yes, the way all of this got started is that uh, my co-author, Jevin West, is in the information school here at the University of Washington. I'm in biology, but we're close friends. And, and he told me that as he was designing the data science curriculum for the university, he wanted to start teaching a course called uh, Big Data teaching students how to operate with big data. And I said, well, you know, okay, but if you do that, I'm going to have to teach a course called Calling Bullshit on Big Data because I'm a bit of a skeptic of, I think it's mostly, you know, snake oil. And uh, and he laughed and said, and said, wow, I'd like to teach that with you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, that'd be so much fun. And so we started taking notes about what would go into a course like that, which would be amazing. And, uh, and, and what we ended up, uh, you know, realizing very quickly was that, well, it wasn't fair to just pick on big data. We had to look at all the different ways that people would, um, you know, use numbers and statistics and algorithms to mislead, uh, members of the public and to mislead other scientists for that matter. And, and so, you did that. And what I love about that story is he was willing to be skeptical about his own thoughts, his oh, own absolutely. work. Yeah, and joined yeah. you in your skepticism, and the two of you then could collaborate, which is really the heart of the book, I think, is a healthy skepticism toward the outside and the inside world. And and the collaboration. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. the thing we say this in the book, you know, you don't call bullshit to make yourself seem smarter. You call bullshit to make other people smarter. And it's really, it's not some, it's not some kind of like, you know, power move or something like that, but it's the heart of constructive collaboration. It's something Jevin and I have had for many, many years 
where, you know, we'll, we'll come up with some research result. We'll be very excited about it. And it looks like, wow, we're going to be able to send this to a great journal. It's going to be really important. And then we spend a week trying to break it. <laughs> and like, okay, is there some place that we could possibly break? You know, I just listened to your podcast with uh, Saul Perlmutter. He had these results uh, that were going to change the way we've used the cosmos. But what did he do? He, like, didn't believe them and spent months trying to break them. Um, so to the point that he almost wasn't, you know, he didn't know how to be excited until someone else told him to be excited. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what we do. You know, we just sit and you try to break these things. And then, you know, at some point you like realize like, oh, hey, try, you know, try running this control or something. And you do that. And then, and then you're like, oh, that all was an artifact. You bring me back to Ben Franklin and his, his notes to his nephew. Oh, where yeah. he says, don't just declare things precede them with words like, it seems to me, mm -hmm. or I may be wrong, but where you leave, leave a little opening for an, an opposing point of view. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, at the core of science, right, is you, you have to quantify uh, or at least qualify your uncertainty about things. We're very rarely completely sure about things. So it's you know, absolutely critical to find ways to uh, express, you know, where we don't know for certain, why we don't know for certain, what it would take to change your mind, uh, and that kind of thing. So not everything everybody says is bullshit. How do you define it? Oh, okay. So, you know, we define bullshit as, uh, uh, as language, um, statistical figures, data graphics, other forms of presentation that are intended to persuade someone by overwhelming them or impressing them with a blatant disregard for truth or logical coherence. So the key is I'm trying to, rather than inform you about something, I'm just trying to make you think, wow, that guy's so smart, or wow, I can't possibly question him, or whatever, you know, it, um, at, instead of actually trying to help you understand the world better. That's bullshit for me. Does your use of the term include deliberate misinformation? Lying? <sighs> yeah, I, I think it's, so, it's, it's somewhat different. I mean, you know, Harry Frankfurt is a philosopher who wrote the first sort of philosophical book on, on bullshit. There's a book called On Bullshit. It's a wonderful little book. And it lays out, you know, it sort of starts out by saying, you know, there's so much bullshit in the world. We all deal with it daily. We all contribute our share, but there's no theory. And then he goes to develop the theory. And, you know, what he says is that the difference between a liar and a bullshitter is that the liar knows where the truth is and is trying to lead you in the opposite direction. Uh, whereas a bullshitter either doesn't know where the truth is or doesn't care. And it's just trying to make an impression. One of the things that's interesting about the book is that you make a distinction between old-fashioned bullshitting and a new kind of, of bullshitting that most of us are susceptible to because we don't have the background for it. How do you make that distinction? What would be an example of the old-fashioned kind and the new-fashioned? Yeah, so the old-fashioned kind is sort of the bullshit that's wrapped up in words and, and uh, uh, just, you know, it may be a politician's fancy speech, you know, with rhetoric. It may be some kind of, you know, new age slogan. Um, something like that. Um, the newfangled bullshit that we're talking about and that the book is really focused on, the book is really about how to see through the misuse of numbers and statistics and, and quantitative claims. And so the newfangled bullshit is someone takes some numbers and they sort of hit you with an avalanche of numbers and then you feel like you can't question that. The whole point of the book is, is no, absolutely you can question this stuff. And so the whole book is about empowering people to stand up for themselves against this deluge of numbers that are thrown at us in this sort of increasingly uh, quantified world. 
So I'd like to compare that numerical BS with the old-fashioned kind, which was just all words, but he still continued. I mean, we still hear it. Absolutely. Advertising uh, relies on you know, this kind of thing. Obviously, it's the it's the heart and soul of politics at some level, unfortunately. I don't think anyone went through high school without writing stuff they didn't really know or understand on a, on a you know, senior <laughs> English essay, right? I mean, this is something we do as a species. We do bullshit. I had a teacher once who said, you have to put something down in the exam paper because I can't give you partial credit if you don't have something. So he was, he was <laughs> giving me a license to bullshit. Exactly. That's a license to bullshit. And, uh, and, and and even if we're not given the license, we still take it. I think I, I don't know anyone who hasn't. You seem to come across this problem in a shocking way when you were helping prepare for a future pandemic before the one we're living through now. And I was struck by the idea that, is, is this correct? that you were more afraid that people would be hoarding or stealing or taking, cheating and getting first in line for vaccines and that people in need without resources wouldn't get them, when in fact what happened was kind of the opposite. That's absolutely true, Alan. That was one of the things, you know, we were involved in developing the U.S. pandemic plan uh, under under um, George W. Bush. And at the time, it didn't occur to us that we would have this sort of widespread, um, you know, disbelief in what was happening and disbelief in the seriousness of the pandemic or the sort of you know, level of anti-vax sentiment that we faced in the U.S. We really believed that if a pandemic hit, the nation would pull together. Um, and if anything, the problem would be that people would be trying to jump in line uh, rather than just saying, hey, this doesn't even exist. So what happened? Well, that's a really good question. Um, partly, we underestimated the nature of, uh, you know, human uh, tribal sentiment, I guess. And partly, I think we didn't expect social media. I think there are you know, many, many lines of evidence that suggest that social media is radically changing the way that we understand the world as a, as a culture. And in a lot of ways, for the worse. And these kinds of things sort of only could have happened with the aid of social media. The need for social validation, I think you say somewhere in the book, is really high. It's, a, it's, it's an important need that we have, and it sort of has no bounds in social media. That's right. I mean, the way that human beings communicate has changed so radically in the last 20 years, even the last 10 years, that we can't even begin to comprehend how that's changing society, because we've 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 gone from everybody knowing, uh, you know, a a few hundred people maybe um, and interacting with at most, you know, 100 people in a day or something like that to a situation where sort of everybody in the in the world uh, or half of the world is connected on on social media and information can travel extremely rapidly on this new kind of highly connected network structure. When that does happen, there are a whole bunch of things that are really different from anything we've ever seen before. First of all, of course, people are reaching much larger numbers of of other people. Um, There's this sort of enormous asymmetry of influence where you have some people that can get on the Internet and type something and uh, 100,000 people have read it by or a million people or 10 million people have read it by that evening. You know, the world didn't be didn't used to be like that. Social media networks are very, very good at feeding us what, you know, two things, right? One, what we want to hear, and two, two things that keep us outraged. 
because outrage drives engagement and they've they've learned this and so it's it's you know we're we're simultaneously being told uh you know we're having our own points of view reconfirmed while being sort of systematically pissed off by what else is going out there and that drives division into a society in in really new and really dangerous ways there are many other things i could say about social media but that's one yeah another one that i've heard you say is the absence of an editorial presence People are their own publishing houses. And I, I wonder, do you suppose there's a connection between that and the need to be in tune with like-minded people? I think it's exactly what, what is happening. There's a very nice insight that Judith Donath at MIT had, which is when I share information on social media, I am not necessarily, you know, suppose I have some fact about, you know, Biden's tax policy or, or some consequence of Biden's administration or whatever. So I share this fact and I'm not necessarily trying to inform you about, uh, about that fact, but I'm very likely actually signaling about who I am. I'm signaling, you know, I am one of the people that's going to stand by Biden no matter what, or I'm someone who thinks that no matter what he does, you know, Biden's always wrong or, or whatever it is. And so awful lot of the time when I'm sharing information on social media, I'm really talking about myself. Yeah. And then I'm looking forward to the feedback from other people who are going to say, yeah, you're right. You know, this is really important, whatever that is. So as a result, it doesn't even have to be true. Whatever I tell you doesn't have to be true. And in fact, if what I tell you is untrue to the point of being almost impossible to believe, that's an even stronger signal of my affiliation. So if I tell you something that's true, you can say, well, Carl said this thing that's true about Biden, but I don't know whether he likes Biden or hates Biden because the thing is true. But if mm -hmm. I tell you something ridiculous, you know, about it, then, then you'll know right away sort of what my position is. And that, that's often what I'm signaling. That also seems to be one of the factors contributing to why this stuff travels so fast. Yes. Has this been something you've thought about, too? It seems to me that the truth tends to be a little duller than crazy ideas. Absolutely. This is, you know, this happens at every level. So it happens on social media, of course. Um, it, you know, these kind of spectacular rumors and things are the ones that fly, you know, going back to uh, Jonathan Swift, uh, you know, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after. Um, the the uh, We see this increasingly and for a very important reason, I think, in traditional media as well. So there's been an enormous shift that, you know, not even talking about the social media shift, but just this enormous shift in the last 20 years as we've digitized traditional media and we've gone to a mode of revenue that's based on clicks on individual articles or pieces of content rather than based on subscriptions and revenue and advertising that's proportional to subscription base. What that does is it puts all of the different platforms um, in in head-to-head -head competition with one another. So instead of deciding, oh, I'm going to subscribe to the New York Times this year and just read that, I pick up my phone every morning and I like look at the phone and it gives me you know ten news stories here and there's you know a couple of interesting analyses of uh, of foreign policy in Ukraine and then I say you know oh whoa some you know somebody got uh, plastic surgery and then here's nine cats that look like Disney princesses and <laughs> the worst of my nature takes off and I'm clicking on the garbage. The only way I'm going to click on a news story is if it says, you know, in that competitive environment is if it says something shocking. Right. right. And yeah. so, you know, as we say in the, in the book, the, you know, the, one of the core problems of the click based advertising model is that the unvarnished truth is no longer enough. And so people have to add hype. The hunger for eyeballs. Yes, because exactly. Because the eyeballs are saleable. 
the eyeballs are available these days. And it used to be a little different. It used to be you'd make these, you know, there's still always a hunger for eyeballs. You needed the subscription base, but we were making these long-term decisions. Mm. Um, you know, when I, when, you know, if you ask me sort of, you know, what movie do I want to watch uh, uh, tomorrow night? I'll, I'll think about, I'll say, oh, let's watch this French film from 1967. And tomorrow night I'm exhausted. You know, I've had a couple of beers and uh, you say, what do you want to watch? I'm like, how about Jersey Shore? And, uh, you know, it's like in the moment, it's sort of the worst of our, you know, we, 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 we drop to the worst of our nature, right? We make these long-term decisions <laughs> for, 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 uh, that are good, you know, but in the short term, we're just, oh man, I just want some mindless entertainment here. When we come back from our break, Carl Bergstrom tells me how peacock's tails and hungry chicks led him to wondering how evolution has favored truth over lies and why social media does the opposite. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carl Bergstrom. You know, you have so many far-ranging interests, one of which is birds. What have you learned from birds about what we're talking about? Oh, I, I mean, I love birds so much. This is like a huge part of my life. Um, I'm a biologist, and 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 uh, and I spent my um, much good part of my PhD thinking about how animals communicate. And in particular, I thought a lot about how birds communicate. Well, well, first of all, what do they talk about? I think they talk about the same kinds of things that people do. <laughs> what do they sex. talk about? <laughs> they talk about sex. They talk about food, right? And uh, so those are the two that I work that I thought the most about was you know how does a how does a how does a male uh, bird uh, say a peacock convince a female that uh, that he's got great genes and is in good condition and would be a good mate? And, and I thought about that, and then I thought about you know about food. I thought, well, how does a baby bird convince a mom that it's really actually hungry? And so there are these neat ideas that that get at this, and it's a it's a concept called the handicap principle. And, uh, you know, I would summarize this by saying, you know, if, if, if you have signals where, um, where lying is sufficiently costly, um, but you know, telling the truth isn't necessarily that costly, 
then no one's going to want to lie. So the question is, well, how do you set up signals like that? And I can tell you, you know, so for example, with the with the uh, the peacock carries carries around this huge, you know, train that we all see at the at the zoo, and uh, and. And so if a peacock is in good condition and has good genes and doesn't have diseases and whatever else, it can carry around this huge train, um, you know, sort of like a handicap. It can voluntarily take on this handicap and it can still get away from whatever predators would have been in the jungle. You know, so, if, so of course, a, a male that was in poor condition could try doing this, but it would uh, it, it either wouldn't work because it didn't have enough food or it would get, get, uh, get caught by a predator and so on. So this turns out to be quite a reliable signal to the female of, that the genes... Are, are good. At least that's the argument. For food, baby birds sit there in the nest and they make a total racket. You've all seen this. One of the easiest ways to find birds, baby birds in 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 the wild, is just to listen for the racket that they're making in the mm. nest. Why would they do that? Because they're just these little, you know, basically like you know, defenseless little McNuggets sitting there in a nest with. Uh, why would they be just yelling at the top of their lungs, saying, "I'm here, I'm here, come eat me." Um, and it, this is thought to be a reliable signal to the mother about, or, and the father who are feeding them, about which birds are hungry and which birds aren't. And, you know, the idea is that, well, they'd all like to get an extra bite to eat if they could. The parents don't want to have to just provision them indefinitely. They want to feed them enough, but not, you know, have to keep working to, to bring them food. And so if, so how do you get food as a baby bird you beg? And loudly. And so if you're really hungry and you're you know, sort of at risk of starving or something like that, you're not worried about the risk that you're going to attract a raccoon or whatever. You're just feed me, feed me, feed me. If you're pretty full and pretty happy, you're not, you don't need that next bite of food. You just want to keep the raccoon away. So you shut up. So there's an and, incentive on the part of the chick to tell the truth with, with squawking. Exactly. There's an incentive to tell the truth. What's the incentive for somebody squawking on the internet, tweeting? That's the problem, right? I don't think there is one. We used to have, and this is a really important observation, is that, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, that when I interact with people, I'm interacting with a hundred neighbors and friends and colleagues and whatever, and I start just lying to them all the time. I get a really bad reputation and that really harms me. I get out on the internet and I'm blasting information to people I've never met, never will meet. Half of us are on anonymous handles. Um, I, I, we've been connected by some algorithm so that so that they're likely to, you know, want to hear whatever lies I'm telling them anyway. There's no incentive not to lie. And it's a really structurally different system. And I think that's part of what we're facing. So what can we do about all this? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask me that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, one thing I think we desperately need to do, well, there are a few things we can do, Alan. Um, you know, one thing I think, you know, we need to do sort of almost from the research side is we need to, uh, embark in sort of a crash effort to understand what social media is doing to discourse and doing to the way people understand the world. And, and this is an absolutely vital thing to figure out because if we can't get good information to people, we're going to lose our ability to do so many things that we rely on, whether it's, you know, um, uh, you know, maintain a, a vibrant democracy or um, stave off a pandemic and respond well to a pandemic or address climate change or you know, fight racism or any of these things that, that are so important to our society. If people don't have access to accurate information about what the world is like, uh, and what other people in their world believe, then we're 
going to fail on all those accounts. And that's, we can't have that. So we're in a position where we don't have a theory to explain what's going on. We've got to be acting now to try to think about how to regulate these systems um, and, you know, what kind of systems would lead to better information for people. So this is what we've described as a crisis discipline, the same way that, uh, that, you know, climate change or global extinction is a crisis discipline. You've got a situation where we don't completely understand, uh, you know, the global ecosystem and how that's driving extinction and what human changes are doing and, and how all of this is linked together. And yet we can't sit around and wait for 30 years to come up with the adequate theory and then decide what to do. We've got to start acting now to conserve what we have. So I think we're in a somewhat similar situation with with uh, with social media as we're facing sort of a crisis discipline. We need people from a whole lot of different areas of science, everything from you know computer science to sociology to communications, psychology, biology, whatever it is, to come together, start thinking about these problems and figure out what we can do that can create a world where people have access to better information. So I wonder about the value of making platforms of social media responsible for what's said on them. I'm thinking, for instance, a letter to the editor of the New York Times is something like a tweet. Yes. The editor of the Times has the responsibility to to vet that in some way. Yes. I think if, if I wrote a letter to the New York Times and it was published and I suggested in my letter that an official in government be assassinated, that the Times would be held responsible for that. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think part of the thing we have to figure out is what's the right metaphor for social media. So we don't hold, you know, we didn't hold Ma Bell responsible for the crazy things people told each other on the telephone. Right, that's true. And so, so the question is, you know, is, is Twitter a publication platform? Is it a communication channel? Like, what is it? Um, and I think we don't have good answers to that. I think, you know, moderating content at scale is difficult to impossible. Um, I'm not very optimistic that except for maybe, you know, the sort of extreme cases, you know, calls to assassinate a government official, like you mentioned, that, uh, that you can moderate um, speech effectively at enormous scales there. Not sure we want a society where you can, because for a while that we may be moderating things we like, and then later we're moderating like, hey, I don't like the current government. It's like, oh, can't say that. And that gets shut down. I don't yeah, want to live in exactly. that. Um, and so, uh, so, so I suspect that the answers that we're going to find palatable are going to lie more in the way that these networks are structured. Who's connected to whom? Uh, what, what, is the, what are the patterns of communication look like? Um, it'll involve some oversight into the algorithms that decide what we see and read about and who we know. How can you deal with their algorithms if, on the one hand, their business model depends on the algorithm being the way it is, and on the other hand, they don't want to tell you anything about how their algorithm works? Well, this is, this is, the, this is a big challenge we're facing right now. My colleague Joe Bach Coleman compares it to trying to fight climate change if, uh, if uh, ExxonMobil owned all the thermometers in the world. <laughs> it, it's getting hotter. No, we probably, <laughs> not that we hot. <laughs> hotter. We promise you, it's not actually getting hotter. And this is the sort of stuff we hear from Facebook all the time. You know, it's like you know, Facebook's damaging uh, the mental health of adolescents. Well, we studied it with our own internal team, and the answer is usually not. You know, it's like, well, we don't. You know, you, we've got to. They've got to be open to this kind of oversight. Um, you know, I think that uh, this is a place where. You, know, you may need government intervention and you're not at this 
not at the scale of telling them what can or can't be said on the platform, but uh, on the scale of, you know, this is behaving like a public utility. We need transparency and we need to shift the power. And this is a kind of classic antitrust thing to do. We need to shift the power from the corporate entity to the individual consumers, right? By allowing them to opt in or out on certain things. I am not a legal expert. I mean, this is why this has to be this sort of massively interdisciplinary project. You know, here at the UW, I work with people who are in law and, and are you know much better suited to answer these questions than I am. But these are some of the, the sort of approaches that are appealing to me. Well, your book is certainly a start in that it encourages us individually to do something about this, to be skeptical. Absolutely. And maybe spread that skepticism on the very platforms that the nonsense is being spread on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, 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 the aim really, again, is just to empower people to uh, be able to push back. I think education is tremendously important in all of this. You know, this is this is where I've certainly uh, put my own efforts because it's where I have some expertise. It's what I do. I'm a college professor. And so I teach people how to think uh, more critically for themselves. And um, one thing that I think we need to do in this country around science, and this has been a part of a big project, actually, uh, Saul Perlmutter has been involved in this as well, uh, is to sort of re-envision how science education needs to work for a misinformation age so that people are more resilient against anti-vax propaganda and the likes. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we do in science education right now is to teach people sort of the the final conclusions of science, the, you know, oh, science found these facts and here they are. And, 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 and they'll be uh, the same forever. And they'll be the same forever and all of that. Right. And, uh, and, and, and what we don't do is we don't teach people about the sort of the social nature of science. We don't teach people about science as a social process, how it works, how science is actually this massively parallel operation of literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world working together full time to better understand how that world works. And that group of people has, you know, have ways of coming toward consensus, deciding when things are sufficiently well settled that, that, that they, you know, can largely be taken, at least for the time being, as fact. We don't teach people that things are ugly and messy for the first, you know, you, you have some research question and for a while it's just unsettled. And so then all, and we don't teach people why once it does get settled, there's a lot of reason to have faith in that and how, if it turned out to be wrong, it would be corrected. And so as a result, people have a lot of misleading ideas about what science is and, and about the possibilities of conspiracy. You know, uh, if someone made some great discovery of a power source, you know, people think that you know, scientists could just call each other up and say, well, let's not say anything about this so we can keep people <laughs> over it you know, or whatever, right? And this just, this absolutely can't happen. Same thing with, you know, drugs and, and everything else. So I think if people understood the social process of science adequately to understand, you know, what constituted expertise, what is the scientific, how does scientific consensus arise? What does that mean? What are its limitations? Um, you know, how does science deal with internal debates early on, all of that? They might have a lot more reason to be confident in the information they're getting because, of course, you know, what we know about a rapidly emerging situation is evolving every day. You know, I think I've been waiting 30 years to talk to you without realizing I was waiting to talk to you. Because for that amount of time, I've really wondered how change travels and spreads through a culture. Mm -hmm. Everything from haircuts to political ideas. Uh-huh. 
And here you have studied animal communication and deception. You've studied epidemiology, the spread of disease. Do you think you have a handle on this at all about what is the machine that allows change to happen in such a mysterious way like that? It is really hard to disappoint you after 30 years, but I don't think I do. Um, I think those are absolutely fundamental questions. I think we're we're coming at understanding uh, in certain spaces. I mean, we're starting to understand very well, for example, this is something I also worked on, what causes a pathogen to change enough that it goes from uh, being a bat pathogen that if it gets into people, doesn't spread much to causing a global pandemic that kills millions of people. We're understanding some of those kinds of changes. Social change is a lot harder. Well, I, I think that the example of COVID is primary because here you had something virally growing in menace and the very thing that could hold it back was checked by something else growing in menace, which was right. our attitudes towards science and vaccines and so on. That's right. The epidemiology of a thought process is maybe as important as, as, as that of the virus itself. I, I think absolutely. I mean, this is why I have been working on misinformation for the last five years or so. You know, about five years ago, I went to a meeting that Joe Buck Coleman organized at Princeton. Um, wasn't even quite sure why I was invited. It was about misinformation and disinformation. And you know, I went and talked about the stuff we've done in terms of educating people, listened to everybody talking about the scope of this risk and the way social media plays in and everything you just said. And I walked out of that meeting three days later thinking, this is the most important thing I could possibly be working on. This is what I want to do with the next decade of my life. And so, I mean, absolutely. It's like we need to understand how those, how the system that we've constructed that we live in, this complex system of information exchange, facilitates the spread of ideas that are harming our society. Well, as you make progress, keep in touch with me. I don't want another 30 years to go by. Yeah. All right. That sounds really, really good. We're running out of time, but we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. Are you game? I'm always game. What do you wish you really understood? I'd like to really understand how the algorithms that uh, social media companies are using affect the way that information moves on, uh, on social media platforms. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You try to find a, a sort of common point of agreement, and it often may be an emotional one. You know, it's like I, I'm. You're talking about vaccines. You know, you're just like, gosh, you know, I'm. I've got kids. I'm worried about my kids. Huh. I, I know what it's like to be worried about kids. You know, and then you start talking about that. We'll go from there. Okay. Next one. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Okay. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Sounds like that, you have a few. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to blank here, Alan. I apologize. Oh. I can come back to it, but I'm okay. trying to blank. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I suppose you walk away. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that. I mean, that's, a, that's a lesson in our book, right? Know when to walk away. That's one of the lessons in our book. Sometimes uh, you need to you need to say this is not a situation where I'm going to make progress. I need to just cut my losses. Okay. Here's one where you can't walk away. You're sitting next to someone at a dinner table who you don't know. 
How do you strike up a real, genuine conversation? I suppose you just ask a couple of questions. Start with a couple of questions. And it, obviously, this is tricky because it, uh, you can't just ask people, you know, hey, what's the weirdest question anybody ever asked you? You do that <laughs> in a parent table, someone's going to treat you like you're weird. Um, but, but you start within the bounds of what's acceptable and you, and you stretch toward those questions and, and it'll come to you. What gives you confidence? The successes that our culture has had moving through many, many different information revolutions. So people were so panicked when the printing press was developed. People wrote all these things about how the printing press was going to lead to the downfall of society. People, then any old anybody would be able to print things and they'd probably all be lies. And uh, you know, one famous scribe wrote about how the, the youth might even start reading Ovid instead of the Bible. And <laughs> terrible things were going to happen. And, uh, and we weathered that just fine. And, you know, and then I try to think back to, you know, when people first develop written language and imagine, we don't have any records, right? But when people first develop written language, you can just imagine what the, what the bards and storytellers would have been saying this was going to do to society if, if you could write things down. We must have been panicked. So our society is, has been resilient in the past. Doesn't mean it always will be, but I have some confidence and, and optimism that we can learn to adapt to changing information platforms and and find our way. It just may be ugly in the interim, and I, I'd like to make it as, as not ugly as possible. Okay, last question. Yeah. What book changed your life? Oh, great question. Um, I think uh, I, 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 the one I would probably pick out actually was is Gudelescher uh, Bach by uh, Douglas Hofstadter, and it's this beautiful explanation, and it's this, it's this wide-ranging, uh, you know, uh, exploration of the interaction between art and complex systems and, and logic and paradoxes and logic. And I found that as a, as a high schooler and read, read it, understood half of it, read it again, understood, you know, two thirds of it. And, you know, I've read it three or four times and it just, it just showed for me the beauty of science that occurred in the abstract space of numbers and of logic and that kind of thing. And it showed me that that was as beautiful as the science that we study in the concrete in terms of understanding what happens in a, in a, in a forest. How does that ecosystem function or, or what happens, uh, you know, in a nuclear reactor or whatever. That's great. And it's a great note to end our conversation on because your avid pursuit of knowledge, your curiosity is the very best companion to skepticism because it can help you not be swayed by the thing you should be skeptical about. I, I think that's right, and I think it may also help you do the most important you know, thing with respect to bullshit, and this is what uh, Neil Postman, a famous sociologist, pointed out. His, his, his rule of bullshit is that the bullshit you have to be most concerned about is that which comes from yourself. Right. And so, you know, always trying to remember to question yourself that way, and that curiosity makes it fun, you know, just like Saul Perlmutter was like, talked about this too. He was just talking about how, you know, uh, um, you know, the best thing that could happen to a scientist is that like what you believed wasn't right. You know, that's what he hopes to get out of this telescope. Well, it's the same thing, right? With that curiosity, if you find out that what you believed is wrong, that's just exciting. Well, thanks for this conversation. I had a great time. Me too, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It was awesome. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. 
My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Carl Bergstrom is a professor of biology at the University of Washington. The book he co-authored is Calling Bullshit. His website is ctbergstrom.com, where his love of birds is revealed in a gallery of beautiful original photographs. And in case you missed it, the book that changed his life is Gödel Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Philip Detmer. He's the creator of the popular science YouTube channel Kurzgesagt, whose English subtitle is In a Nutshell. His videos have an astonishing 1.6 billion views. We're not doing science education. You're not an expert on anything after watching our videos, but hopefully you, you can appreciate something more. You're like having fun watching it and yeah your curiosity is sparked and you then go on to like to read a book or i don't know like like watch more videos to get more in depth of it but sparking curiosity and, and making science palatable for a big general audience that's like the goal philip detmer and how a nutshell of science can be nourishing next time on clear and vivid for more details about clear and vivid and to sign up for my newsletter please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.